Ooh, I'm, yeah, I'm actually getting the toffee on the um on the back. Yeah, it's like it's a nice. toffee ice cream. Yeah, that's yeah, it's it's it's. Oh, yeah, you see, connoisseur's got some new flavors. Mm. Got uh, I tried the uh, green tea and waffle cone. Oh, really, green tea and waffle cone. Yeah. We should start doing ice cream reviews. I reckon. Yeah. Followed by scotch, I think that could work. Gee. In fact, a caramel a caramel ice cream followed by a scotch, I think would go down a treat. Wow, on the rocks. Is that too? No, no, <laughs> no. That's sacrilege. <laughs> Gotta be neat. All right, how are we recording? We are recording. Excellent. Welcome to another episode of The Purple Fringe, the show where we chat about the high end of low end digital media production. My name's Jonathan, and Chris, how are you? I am very well, thank you. I've just uh, come back from uh, a big trip to New York City, the land of B&H. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you brought things. back with you a new toy. Yeah, uh, yes, I did. Uh, we are recording the show today on a little Testcam DR40. A uh, little audio recorder, little handheld thing. It was there for 110 bucks on special, and I was like, geez, they cost $500 in Australia. Mm. I will have one of those. And Excellent. it's a little bit like going shopping for vegetables in B&H. You know, yeah. you just <laughs> you A couple just audio stuff recorders, up. they're good for you. And I, I deliberately walked in there saying, I'm going to like spend you know a few hundred bucks and see what I come out with. And um, yeah, it was great. I actually used it when I was overseas. I was doing music stuff and all sorts of things. So, um, so this is like walking into a casino for you, Chris. You've got a budget. You're going to spend. You're going to see what you come out with. Might be good. Might be bad. But Except hey, it'll be an usu- experience. You usually win. Yeah. Yeah. Usually, <laughs> not always. But um, yeah. No. Uh, th- th- there was a whole lot of stuff. Um, yeah, there was. It was just great to see and uh, get my hands on and, and check out. Of course, you know when you're in a big place like that, you get a lot of the smaller accessories and variations uh, that you, you don't get in a smaller. Yeah, the esoteric store. stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it was nice to really sort of uh, have a look. I spent um, sort of four hours in there walking around at all the various stuff, as we do when we're uh, got a podcast about uh, the love of the. Um, the low end of high end, which of course, uh, or the high end of low end, or the high end of low end. Of <laughs> Either course, way, <laughs> these stores are renowned for uh, for catering to. So yeah. there has been so much going on in the last few weeks, Jonathan. Where do we start? I mean, there's been. Um, I was being heckled from the uh, what was this show in the Netherlands uh, that happened um, in Amsterdam? IBC. I, 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 IBC happened yeah. last week. Mm-hmm. Um, had a couple of friends there who were sending me photos as they went. Uh, a couple of people who uh, had uh, said hello, uh, people from uh, a certain video editing software stall mm. that's uh, remembered me when I was a beta tester for them. So, yep. yeah, it's a small world, um, but certainly some of the stuff that was announced at IBC was pretty cool. Hmm. Um, You've also had, I suppose, the uh, Apple event with the new iPhone, which has some interesting developments with the camera, which uh, we might talk about a little bit later, but that's that's probably the, the low end of low end. But, hey, lots of people are shooting on their phones now, and there's some interesting stuff there genuinely with the camera systems. So maybe we'll chat about that a little bit later on. And there's a lot of stuff that over the years that I've created that has got the odd shot here and there that's shot on an iPhone um, mm. or a HTC or whatever people are using. You know, sometimes there's a moment, somebody pulls out a camera, captures that moment, and it's somewhere overseas and you can't go and shoot it, you know. The best and camera is the one you've got on you. That's it. So uh, lots to talk about this week. Um of course, starting with the most important thing of any camera, which is a lens, mm-hmm. and uh, Nikon have uh, announced a new portrait prime. What can you say about that? Yeah, it looks really interesting. I'm a Canon guy, but this is a genuinely interesting lens to me. It's a 105mm full-frame f1.4 lens, a prime lens. So this would be 
the godfather of all portrait lenses, I would suggest, because yep. you're going to get a beautiful background in terms of the bokeh. Um, very shallow depth of field, but should be a really nice sort of lens, and you can probably go and shoot with pretty low light at f1.4, and at that sort of range, you're going to get nice compression on the facial features and get some good shots, I would expect. So it's it's really, um, do you want the uh, the face double or the um, the eyes in focus yeah. at that point? Well, um, yeah, do you want the front of the eye or the back of the eye in focus? It's going to be quite shallow, I would suggest. And F, F1.4 is, is quite a shallow uh, yeah, length to be at. But, I mean, you know, yeah. in a way, uh, as you say, if, uh, it opens up the creativity of what you can do with lens. And mm. uh, honestly, this it's not a super cheap lens. It is... Over two thousand US. Yeah, um, in fact, it's an expensive lens. Let's be honest. It's cheaper than, uh, say, a Zeiss Cine Prime or a Cook Cine Prime or something like that. But it's still, yeah, yeah it's you're a in a pricey, different league. So pricey piece of glass. Yeah, um, doesn't have VR or vibration reduction, as Nikon calls it, which arguably isn't a big issue for this sort of lens. Um, You've got things like Sigma's 85 1.4, which uh, is a nice lens as well, suffers from a lot of purple fringing. But um, there's nothing really like this on the Canon side of the fence. There's the 135 F2, which is an absolutely gorgeous lens. I love that lens. But at 1.4, at getting close to the same focal length, I think that would be a really interesting lens to, to shoot with. Mm. And if you're going to buy one portrait prime and you're on Nikon, this would probably be the baby to go for. Yes, it's probably the same cost as your body, but it will last you for the next 15 years. Yeah, you just want to be shooting in a large studio or you're going to be outside at that sort of focal length. Yeah. Otherwise, or in you, the next room. Yeah, yeah. You might step down to an 85 <laughs> if you're uh, working indoors or even even um, even shorter focal length, I think. Yeah, but uh, we can dream, can't we? Moving on to uh, an audio recorder, oh, Zoom. Yes. Uh, when we started putting our notes together, I was a little bit confused, Chris, because I found this video on B&H's website, which was about this new product, the Zoom F4. And I had a look through, I thought, oh, cool, this looks great. I've got uh, an F8 at work. This looks like the baby brother. It looks like it's got many of the same features and it's cheaper. And for most people, you don't need that many channels all the time. So this could be a really good product. But then I started looking around to find some other information about it and there wasn't any. I think so, they accidentally, it was supposed to be announced at IBC, which it was, um, mm. and I think that uh, b may have accidentally published Hit the publish button a little a bit, bit early. Yeah, because <laughs> you went to Zoom's own website and it wasn't on there. So I was very confused and figured that someone had stuffed up and it seems that's the case because now there's plenty of news out there about this particular device and it does look like a, a pretty interesting device. Absolutely. It is, it is a, it's a baby F8 in many respects, yep. but it does have some advantages over the F8. Um, let's start with the things that it doesn't compete with in terms of its bigger brother. It doesn't have any smartphone control, which to be honest, I haven't Never used explored it. that much Why with the F8 because, hey, it's generally not reliable mm. and with audio, you want it to be reliable. And it's got a mono screen, which I don't really care. Color screens are not that amazing on an audio device, so that's not a, a big issue. Um, but it does have a couple of big boy features, things like time code support. So if you want to rig it up with other cameras and uh, clock generators, you can do that. Um, you've also got uh, full-size XLR outs, which the, the F8 does not have. So I think that's a nice addition. What other stuff do you think is interesting on this one, Chris? Um, well, having spent um, two days of my week using an F8 for the entire day, I've, I've, I look at this thing and it's instantly <laughs> very familiar. Mm. Um, I, I think about what I used this week and I didn't, 
I used five channels once during the day where one of them was a line level. Um, yeah. And honestly, the F4 also has a fifth and a sixth input on the side of it uh, with a mini jack, uh, which mm-hmm. you can take in from a stereo source or you could actually jack in from a, mm-hmm. uh, a wireless mic kit or even use a splitter or something like that on it. Yeah. Um, and it still has control over the... It doesn't have knobs on the front for it, which is the only downside, but it does have... Yeah. If they're a fixed input and you know they're not going to vary, you know, you can set the gain in, in a menu quite easy on it uh, from the, the video demo I've seen. So honestly, I think that for a lot of people who might be in the market for an F8, this might actually be a unit that is good enough for them, you know, and they, they yeah. don't actually need those extra four XLR in channels. Um, and look, I love the fact that they've retained the um, LED, because the most handy thing on it is the LED um, uh, displays on the actual channels. They're very fast and very responsive. Mm. And... Um, been able to easily just monitor, like tap between the inputs to be able to listen to what you know is going on. To be able to jump into uh, the uh, what's happening on each track and jump to features like pass filters and uh, and and phantom power options and things like that. All of that ability is still in there with a big dirty record button with a nice beep on and triple beep off sound. It its form factor and the way you operate it is is just good for film yeah, and television. Yeah, very akin it's, to some of the sound devices units. So exactly. this is like the F8 did, um, competing to a degree with those devices as a more entry-level option. And basically, if you don't need those extra inputs, which, let's face it, most people don't, then most this is scenarios a pretty good don't option. as well, yeah. yeah I it's mean, only when you're dealing with, well, for me, it would be dealing with a, a full panel of speakers where I need those extra inputs yeah. where everyone's got mics. But if you're doing you know, short films and stuff like that, you, you're not going to need that many inputs. Generally, well, I don't know. You've got a boom up and generally I throw a few uh, lapels around the room as well just because I own them and they can be handy. So I will often end up with, um, you know, maybe four inputs. Is a healthy, easy number to take care of, you know. So yeah. that is probably, yeah, I would consider actually getting one of these, the form factor alone. Battery life is honestly, I think they need to provide a better battery option for it, like a... Because as far as I know, they don't have a rechargeable, just nice solid, solid block of a battery. No, do you do that as an external thing, which you can tap into. Yeah. Um, so you can do double A's uh, internally. You yeah. can uh, do an external battery, which will will tap into it. And you can also do, it comes with, I believe, um, if it doesn't come with it, you can buy it separately, a wall outlet. So you've got three main ways to power the thing, similar to the F8. So... For most people, you're probably going to find a solution there. Um, and if you want to buy a big honking battery to cart around with it, then that is an option. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty excited about this. I might even up ending owning one. The only thing is you look at what else that they've got. Zoom have got the um, uh, the H6 as well, which mm. is a four-channel audio recorder with good pre's, and it has... Um, option for six. An option for six inputs with a little um, the Zoom connector on the top of it. Which can... this also has. So you can add one of those little connectors to one of these units if you really wanted to put a shotgun mic on it, which would be weird, but or you could. Or add an extra two inputs to the for back XLR. of it as well. You yeah. could potentially add extra two inputs to it and make it a F6, I guess. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, look, it's uh, it's an interesting unit. Um 650 bucks US. Uh, so realistically, in this country, if you got a good deal on it, you'd be probably around 800. 
Yeah, um, that's quite. It's it's definitely more expensive than the F. Uh, sorry, than the H6, which I have noticed has creeped up in price. It's approaching six hundred dollars these days. But it's um, the form factor of this. The H6 yeah. sits on a table really well. This probably doesn't sit on a table so well. But as strapped to your side as a as a run around unit, it is fantastic. Mm. I mean, I've used it for two days this week, and or the the F8 anyway, and it hasn't skipped a beat. It's been amazing. Excellent. Brilliant. Cool. Black Magic, Chris. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks, so of course they had to announce at least one thing, probably more. Before before we even uh, mention this, yep. can we talk about Black Magic Cinema Camera Software version 1.0 when we started? <laughs> or even before that, it was, it was a bit after The version was when you couldn't format the memory inside the camera. And where the we camera, can talk about that. And where the camera would crash and overheat and freak mm-hmm. out and you'd be on set going, uh, yep. uh, and I vowed I would never, ever use another Blackmagic camera again, yep. which has changed since then. I am mm. now, this is the moment where I'm like, all right, we might give it another go. Yeah. Software version four. Yes. <laughs> it's version, taken a while. Version four beta. So <laughs> I'm, look, I'm, I'm still in pain. This is for the Ursa Minis. Um, because obviously they've got some grunt in them to, to run this new piece of software. It'll be interesting to see how wide this rollout uh, goes in terms of a brand new interface, because yep. that's essentially what this is bringing to the camera. Blackmagic always had a very straightforward interface. It had its yeah. problems, but it was probably the most user-friendly in a very weird way, because it was user-friendly for some settings that were somewhat technical. So Blackmagic cameras uh, originally never had the ability to to hold off a bit of white paper and do a white balance against it. You had to dial in your Kelvin temperature manually, but it was very easy to get to that option and very and it was just <laughs> very intuitive. And it's yeah. Like, oh, yeah, it's very straightforward. Yeah. Uh, you just had to know what the light temperature of the room was, which for novices is probably a little bit daunting, but at least it was pretty about the way it did it. Um, this is a whole new interface. It's very much the akin of smartphones and tablets and, and touchscreens and sliding things out and, and bringing in different menus and accessing them when they're needed. Um, it's a lot quicker in terms of your workflow. You can get to stuff quickly. The old right. one, you sort of took over the entire screen and had to drill down. This, you can sort of swipe things in and swipe things out. So it, it does look like a, a much better system, and, and hopefully they'll adopt it on other cameras if possible. But at the very least, this is coming to the Ursa Mini. Fantastic. Well, the Ursa Mini is a really interesting camera because it is a very complete package as yeah, far look, as what well, you Yeah, I just got the uh, 4.6 into the office the other day and rigged it out with the, with the shoulder mount and the, and the EVF and all that sort of stuff. And look, I've got a few complaints. I'm a taller person and I find that it may be built better for someone with shorter arms basically than me. But in terms of the actual camera itself, it's built like a brick shithouse. It's nice and solid. And they even do some cool stuff like give you the wiring diagrams if you want to rig up your own battery solutions uh, for V-lock mounts and stuff like that. And they even give you the Molex connector and, and the wiring. So I respect that they're trying to do some some cool stuff there. And the camera itself is very nice. I haven't shot with it a heap, but um, I'm looking forward to this getting out of beta and becoming a full production ready uh, interface because it's definitely a step up from what was originally on the on the device. Um, you've got the added ability for loading uh, LUTs lookup tables um, for monitoring, and um, you've also got the ability to save your camera settings, which is handy, especially if you've got multiple cameras, because you yep. can set it all up on one camera and then just dupe it out to the others. To others. And it's good if you've got one day of shooting on a job where you want to dial up that setting again for another day. Yeah. And you can save like a whole snapshot. Yeah, of what stuff your camera for locations and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, it looks, looks good. And there's also new codecs that have been put in. 
there's an interesting 3K anamorphic mode. There's um, uh, a new ProRes, a few ProRes resolutions they've added, or as far as I know. Um, and yeah, color, like a really good, um, they've improved the color of the screen. And this is an interesting thing that you think you can do this in software. People mm-hmm. were complaining that the screen wasn't quite, you know, gamut correctly and there was a, a shift in color. And so they, they have fixed all of that, addressed that in software, which is mm-hmm. interesting that, you know, you can fix critical things like that with Any, a firmware update. <laughs> yeah, it's good. And you can still blow through your 128 gig CFast card in three minutes. Oh my God, <laughs> that terrifies me. Um, which is amazing and terrifying. All right, moving on, Chris. Lenses, back to the lenses. We had the Nikon earlier. Now we've got the the Tamron. So what this a beautiful is... looking lens. I know this is an audio yeah, podcast, but yeah. it's smooth. It mm-hmm. looks like it's from the future. I don't know. This is a 150 to 600 f5.6, sorry, f5 to 6.3 lens. Uh, it's a bit of a Canon. Um, Tamron pioneered this category. I think this is a new category altogether. There are now a few lenses that live in this space, but Tamron was the first to do it. And what I mean by that is they were the first to give an affordable zoom lens with a massive range. So 600 millimeters. Um, A student of mine actually bought one and brought it in and I had to play with it uh, for a, a bit of a period. And it was a nice enough lens. The thing that I found annoying about the original version was it used to jump in terms of its stabilization. So what I mean by that is you'd be looking through your camera and you'd see the stabilization happening and then it would sort of recalibrate to the next point on what it was going to stabilize on. And it would do this in a very jerky sort of way. You'd sort of be looking through and then all of a sudden it would jump and then be stable for a while and then it would jump and then be stable for a while. And if you were unfortunate enough to hit the shutter release at one of those points where it was jumping to the next point of stabilization, you'd end up with a very blurry image. So I found it quite frustrating in its stabilization. Sigma released uh, a competitor, the contemporary version, and I've got a couple of those in the office, and I find the stabilization a little bit better, but still not amazing. Uh, There is also the sport version of the Sigma, same sort of range, um, built better, so more sturdy in terms of its construction, but also weighs a kilogram more, which is a bit of an issue if you're out moving around with this lens. So, look, I'll be interested to see how this one compares because it is version 2, and hopefully they've learned a few things about the problems with the stabilization and improved in that area. Um, they claim 4.5 stops worth of, uh, worth of stabilization, which is a fair bit. Yeah, especially at that length. Yeah, and they've also sped up the the AF, so that wasn't a massive issue in the first one, but it definitely could have been faster. It's priced at $1,400 US, which is a little bit pricier than the first one. Um, I'm not sure if it was that sort of price on announcement, but in terms of actually what you'd buy it on the street for, it was definitely a little bit cheaper than that. But you know, this is an interesting sort of lens and definitely worth considering if you're into, into stuff like bird photography wildlife stuff in general. Now, they also announced a couple of teleconverters that work with this lens, which make it an insane sort of setup. And I'm very curious to actually see this in real life. Have they got a two times teleconverter? They've got a 1.4 and a two times teleconverter. So this would turn it into, admittedly with a a heap of light loss and lots of compromises, but you'd have a handheld 1200mm SLR setup, which it's kind of insane. So if you were really into long-range photography, if you wanted to take photos of the moon perhaps, this could be an interesting sort of setup that you could get away with for probably about $1,600, $1,700 Australian. 
Wow. And for 1,200 mil, I mean, that's the kind of thing where if you're up in a sports stadium and you really want to get an expression on someone's face, you know. Well, I think Canon made a 1,200 mil lens. I think they made like five copies or something like that. And it was a hundred and something thousand dollars. So obviously it was a better lens and it was a faster lens, but it was also literally a, a bazooka in terms of its size. So this is an interesting way to get good relative image quality um, relatively cheaply. But then you've got to look at the fact, I mean, are we more likely to get the shot with less blur and more uh, resolve at 600 and just bang in on the pixels? Because, you know, you're, you're talking fairly high resolution of of, uh, of camera, of camera these, these days. days. Well, and also they've, they've put a lot of work into this lens from what I've been reading about uh, reducing ghosting and doing the getting better coatings and better mm-hmm. resolve. So it's going to be a Fairly sharp lens by the looks of it. The thing I'm curious about, it probably competes more with the, the Nikon bridge cameras, the P60s, 90s that have, you know, the 90s got a 90 times zoom, which is insane, and it gives you a better range. It's whether you're going to get the resolve, I suppose, with that sort of lens. Yeah, my experience with those ultra zooms, are that it's not that clean at the end. No. You get something so. that's wide in the frame and it just flares right out and... And yeah, and this is uh, and and just just a very quick. Uh, you did talk about the stabilization bouncing around mm. before this. Apparently, they've got multiple modes of VC now of this vibration, uh, whatever VC stands for. Vibration compensation. Compensation. There we go. Yep. Uh, so uh, apparently, one of those modes is exclusively for panning and moving it around, so that if you do tend to use your camera and and hunt around in the frame, it mm. will uh, prioritize not snapping back. It's like a sort of tighter on the springs. I guess, version of So, look, uh, if you really want to get close... Yep, this it, looks like one of the options. Uh, looks the like the Sigma, cheapest option. The Sigma, I think, from my use with it, is a good lens. It's not a great lens, so I'm curious to see how this one compares when, when it hits the streets. Brilliant. Something a little bit different, Chris. Uh, Plex, which is... Um, something you're, you're not familiar with, so I'm going to give you and the listeners a bit of an intro to Plex. Plex is something that's been around for many years ago. It was originally a fork of Xbox Media Center. That's right. And they did it on the Mac, and now it's cross-platform. In fact, very, very, very cross-platform. It works on Android devices, iPhones, Apple TVs, all this sort of stuff. It's a front-end media player, essentially. Now, it's a little bit different in that it has a server-client infrastructure. So what you do is you install the free... Plex server on generally a computer, but there's also things like the NVIDIA Shield that you can install it on. And you point it at a folder of your media, could be music, could be photos, could be movies, could be TV shows. And it organizes all of that and automatically downloads descriptions from the internet and downloads album art and all this sort of stuff. And then you install the client on your phone or computer or something like an Apple TV and then you can access the the server and, and watch movies and, and TV shows and all that sort of stuff. And the nice thing about the client-server uh, infrastructure is that if you watch something on one client machine, it updates that information on the server, and then when you go to the next machine, it shows up as being watched. Or if you're halfway through it, it shows up as being halfway through and offers the ability to resume. So it's, it's a really cool product. It's free. There is this thing called a Plex Pass, which basically gives you a few extras, like the ability to have movie trailers and, and access to, to beta features. And that's what brings us to the DVR side of things. So one of the Achilles heels of Plex was that it didn't do 
over-the-air TV, DVB-T. Right. Um, Media Center, Windows Media Center, this is one product that Microsoft never got enough props for. It was one of the best things Microsoft has ever made, Media Center. It was really good. It was a beautiful interface. It was fluid. It worked with your own media. It worked with recording TV. It, It worked really well. And then Microsoft killed it in Windows 10. So... Plex has stepped up amongst many other companies that have done similar things, and they've offered a DVR or a digital video recorder option for over-the-air recordings, which in Australia, that's basically how most people watch TV. So it's interesting the way they've done it. You've got these things called HD home runs made by a company called Silicon Dust, which is essentially a dual network television tuner. So you buy one of these TV tuners, you plug it into your router or switch or whatever, and also plug it into your aerial. And then your entire network in your house has access to two TV tuners. And Plex is tapping into this and taking that information and doing recordings and then throwing it into your media library. The way it's doing it is kind of interesting to me because if you look at most um, most DVRs like TiVo, for example, they have this good old-fashioned uh, grid EPG, the Electronic Program Guide, and you see this on most televisions as well. The way Plex is doing it is a little bit different. Instead of showing you this grid of the, the TV schedule, they've like they've completely gotten rid of that and they're basically just showing you shows and movies that are upcoming. And it's almost like you're downloading it, but you're not. You're saying, I like this movie. I like this TV show. Just record it whenever it's on. So you don't even get exposed necessarily to when it's on. It just gets added to your queue. And when it's recorded, it shows up in your media library and you can watch it. So it looks like a replacement for Media Center, but also a really interesting uh, part of this move away from, we call them cable cutters, but moving away from traditional pay TV services. Okay, right. And it supports, um, is it just television or is it also like uh, cable TV and Foxtel and things like that? Now, in this country, it's just going to be over the air stuff. In America, I believe they'll have support for cable service providers as well. Interesting. Australia is a bit, for those not in Australia, it's a bit of a different sort of thing here. We do have cable, but it's far less penetrated in most uh, most households. So it's not such a big thing. Most people will get their stuff over free-to-air. Um, in terms of what it doesn't have, it doesn't have live TV, sorry, live time shifting yet, but they're looking to add it. And it's just an interesting concept. It's this idea that you are blending stuff that you've downloaded or stuff that you've generated yourself with stuff coming over the air, and it's all pretty seamless. So, And, and I guess one thing to look at is at the end of the day, if we're delivering videos, it doesn't matter what we're making, if it's... Um you know, uh, short films or if it's uh, drama or if it's weddings or if it's, uh, geez, even corporate or if it's documentaries or or music videos, people are going to watch this on a platform and uh, Plex Mm. is something that sort of uh, is sitting, has sat fairly steadily on the radar for the last few years. So it's it's something, it's an end game of how people watch, um, you know, your your content. So Mm. It's an interesting uh, technology to keep a handle on, that's for sure. Yeah. Anyway, that, that's a bit different for us because we're normally about the generating side of things, but um, I know there's a lot of people out there that are very much into the way they consume media as well, so that's one to check out. Chris, what's next on the list? Oh, you've thrown this to me. The, there's a new Sony camera for a there change. Is. I think we talk about a new Sony there's camera. There's always a new Sony a, camera. There's a new Panasonic camera as well and yeah. a new Canon camera. Yep. There's a lot of new cameras out there. I haven't heard anything from JVC recently. but um, mm. Well, we did a few weeks ago. But um, basically, Sony have uh, taken their NX5, uh, which uh, sort of was born out of the... Uh, 
Z5, which was sort of born out of the, the Z1 before that, which is born out of the PD150 before that. Mm. And the um, the NX5 is still an HD camera, so it's not a 4K camera. Nothing to get excited about. Yeah. But it's a very um, refined, we'll call it, very refined HD camera at a budget of about $3,500, which US. is US dollars, which is quite a good price point. And they really focused in on giving it some features that make it suitable for the more budget uh, live television broadcast um, mm. in the fact it has uh, SDI outputs on it as yep. well as uh, HDMI outputs. It has a nice clean uh, OLED viewfinder. Um, it has a full range lens, so we go uh, right the way back to 28, which isn't super wide for the. Um, it's pretty common the, though on the these sensor, latest but, yeah. gen cameras. Uh, but it goes right the way to 576 mil optical zoom, which is ridiculous. So yep. you can punch right the way in. So that's 20 times. You can actually double that if you t- uh, include clear zoom as well. Yeah. Yep. So it still uses a, a newer sensor, uh, which can do even higher res uh, imagery. Of course, because it's still recording in HD, mm. you can push in further. It has dual SD slots. It has all the usual stuff like uh, ND uh, uh, filters if you're going to step outside with it or uh, get something in super bright light and want to keep your depth of field. Um, it has, interestingly, a built-in LED light on the front of it. Um, yeah, so very much new shooters and documentaries, I think, with this yeah, one. Yeah, the first thing I'd be doing with that is putting a big diffuser on it, but I'm sure there's a big dirty sock you can shove on the front of it that diffuses the light and gives you a nice little glow. Mm. Um, if not, I'd be making that, uh, improvising that very quickly. Um, yeah. It's also got a uh, Wi-Fi option on it, which I'm not entirely sure what the options are with that, but I assume I'm that was going to be the same as all the latest gen Sony cameras, which means you can you can stream, you can control basic functions of the camera, and it works most of the time. Yeah, a little bit probably like the FS5 I've got. It's it's a little bit... Uh, uh, well, it works mostly. mostly. Same with the, the, the Z150 as yep. well. It's about the same. Um, and interestingly, um, it has the option to add a remote control, which hasn't actually had a price put on it next yet. But this allows you to control a lot of the uh, controls on the camera, such as zoom and um, one push auto and focus and iris and um, multiple other settings on the camera from a, a little remote that you can have up to uh, I think 100 meters away or something like that. This to me is actually the most interesting part of the entire camera. It's the RM-30BP. Um, the reason it's interesting to me is because we just mentioned it. We've got Wi-Fi and that enables you to do certain things, but it's not reliable. Um, whereas if they've got this dedicated hardware remote, perhaps, hopefully, it is reliable. Yeah. And that to me is quite interesting because if you do need to control an unmanned camera, you want reliability, you want to know it's going to work. And if you've got the dedicated tactile buttons, that's nice when you're running and gunning or working in low light especially. Yeah, and the good thing about this um, this remote control is that it's um, it's got the right interface. So if you look at the old, uh, like go back uh, many, many moons and you, you look at the old CCU units that used to get, the camera control units, they used to have a, a knob on them for the iris with an outer ring. and Yeah, it's quite this, similar. Yeah, and it, it has that and a variable zoom rocker and it, it's just a nice looking remote. It really is. It's small. I would say that it's probably half the size that it it should be for professional use, but it's, um, you know, they, they say you can strap it onto your tripod and things like that as well. And mm. the one thing I wish it would have, which it doesn't look to have, is an option to use that clear zoom mode to actually punch in on your image and move around in it. Um, because that would be super handy if you've got an unmanned camera sitting at the back of the room and you need to just slightly reframe something, you know, and get a, a punch into maybe, you know, 50% of your shot. 
and 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 frame it up. I don't know if it'll have the features to do that. It says it's got six assignable buttons. The thing I wonder, and I doubt, but I can be hopeful, is that I wonder if you could do macros with those buttons. I'm guessing you won't be able to, but it'd be really cool if you could because then you could set up different scenes as macros for those six programmable buttons. Um, it can control up to three different cameras simultaneously, which is really cool. So again, if you are doing unmanned stuff, if you're a one-man band or a two-man band and you've got multiple cameras and some of them are just sitting there and you just want to be able to control things remotely, it looks like a really good solution. And it is meant to work with some other Sony cameras. So as of the uh, version 4 of the FS7 firmware, this cam- uh, this remote should work with that camera. And Sony have stated that they do want to bring it to other cameras as well. So that could be interesting. Yeah, uh, it's certainly a great idea to, uh, you know, reduce the cost of, of control because uh, CCUs were, I mean, they if you've got a camera set up sitting on a tripod somewhere, you still want the ability to be able to jump in and control it. You want to chuck it on manual yeah. mode, but if the light changes, you don't want to be running upstairs and trying to get to the back of cameras and engaging, you know, settings on the camera. So, Well, look, the other thing about, just going back to the Wi-Fi for a second, the one thing that annoys me a lot is that when you engage the Wi-Fi mode, it basically locks you out of the camera. Yes, I've experienced that too. So the screen changes to, you are now in Wi-Fi mode. You can't do bugger all to this camera, except if you use the app, which allows you to do bugger all to this camera. Yeah. So a dedicated remote, I think it's going to be a better solution for most of the time, apart from maybe a little bit of change out of your purse. Fantastic. And to go along with this remote is another Sony product that's, uh, they seem to have landed all this at once, which is an interesting paradigm. Mm. Uh, the Sony MCX500, which is a switcher. So for live events, when you're watching, uh, you know, a live event unfold, for argument's sake, let's say we were doing uh, an arts festival or something like that that had someone on stage presenting, had a groups of dancers and had an audience camera. So you had three cameras hooked up and then you might as well uh, have got a feed from somewhere else as well coming in hmm. uh, or something that's going to the screen in the background that you want to flip to every now and again. So that's four, that's three cameras and a, and a sort of master playout screen. And, um, and you might want to put titles and things like that on the, over the top of the people speaking, things like that. That's a scenario of, of live broadcast. Maybe, you know, we want to go to a, you know, a, a who knows what stream, a Ustream or a Facebook stream or whatever. Um, Sony have released a, a switcher. They're, uh, their new, uh, uh, MCX 500. What price this is will determine where, whether it's good or not. <laughs> whether it's good or not. Um, honestly, it's a little lacking on the buttons. I mean, I've been using switches as of you, John, for for a fair number of years. Uh, for me, pushing twenty. Uh, and this seems to uh, cut straight to the chase. There's your um, four buttons for you know. Uh, what what angles you want to switch to, and there's a there's a single sort of uh, button for bringing up your titles. Interestingly, mm. the title that goes over the top is via a VGA input That's that runs it up to sixteen hundred by twelve hundred. Now I haven't heard of that resolution since I had a Sony G5 20, 24 inch monitor. Right, no, I've, I've back decided in the day. I don't care how much this is. This is <laughs> no, this is not good. That's the weird. That's the only weird thing that I can't make sense of. But everything else seems to make sense. Um, and that's uh, the fact that it's got SDI inputs and these new NX5 cameras yeah. that are sitting at, you know, not much, you know, 3,500 a pop have got SDI out on them as well. Of course, SDI is, if anything, it's just more robust and uh, you can just run it without worrying about, you know, dropouts and things. It's just the right format if you want to be able to... Um, Straight, that, basically run cables and do live work. Yeah, that and the actual connector on the camera is less likely to break. I've got a few HDMI cameras where we have run HDMI out of them and the connection's basically dead. 
Yeah, so, and you're being very careful. You can break yeah. them yourself very easy. But this does have two HDMI inputs as well. In fact, it has eight inputs all up. Mm. So you have uh, four SDIs, uh, two of which are switchable to HDMI and two of which are switchable to uh, just a straight video socket. That can be handy for if you want to use legacy equipment. Occasionally, mm. you'll, you know, you'll, you'll get a couple of legacy cameras. It has inputs from a mixing desk as well. So if you're running in a live situation where you want to take the input from a, a mixing console or a front of house, it has the audio for that. It also has the embedded audio from the cameras that you can choose to put in however you want so if you've got you know a, a live audience mic or something like that that you want to add on top of the desk feed you can do that it also has delay compensation for those inputs on the audio so you can line them up so there's no echoes off the sound system and things like that okay good it, it, they've really thought about this being a, a little box that has the ability to cut between four cameras Adds um, titles over the top. You've got Lum also, Luma Key. You have Luma Key chroma. as well and Chroma Key. So if you do want to Which, do... Which I'll be curious to see how well that works. My experience with uh, switches with their built-in chrominance keys are not brilliant, but no. we'll see how it goes. They're not as good as... Um, uh, Anything. Uh, as, say, Ultramat, which <laughs> and Black Amiga Magic from... Just, <laughs> yeah, as a video toaster yeah. from... Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean... If it has options as well, like it has an SD card in the front of it that you can put in and you can record your show live to SD card and just yeah. hand it to the client at the end of the, the thing and say, here it is, and just walk away from it. And I think that combined with the ability to stream to Ustream on the fly, it has a network port in the back of it. You know, yeah. it's a switch where they've really thought about it and tried to add as much as they can. It's got a, uh, it doesn't have a screen or anything on it for monitoring, but it does have the ability to put a, um, uh, a preview monitor and a uh, what your master monitor is as well. So mm -hmm. you can uh, push out to a big screen or something like that in another room or another area as well as having your preview monitor. Your multi-view. Um, your multi-view for viewing all the cameras and what's coming in and queue things up. Yeah. It uh, does seem a bit like the uh, the ATEM from Blackmagic, the TV studio. It's it a does. one RU for a similar price. It does 1080i, which is yep. interesting, but that's what the Blackmagic does as well. I know Eddie Roll make some kind of similar products, but they're in a different form factor. Yeah, and they're mostly SD. There is some HD ones as yeah. well. Um, this just seems to be quite a complete little unit. Now, if it's three and a half thousand bucks, I would consider buying one. I think, you know, the thing is with the Black Magic, yes, it is, you know, a thousand bucks, fourteen hundred dollars kind of thing, but you need to then plug a PC or a Mac <clears> into it to control it. It doesn't have a dedicated interface, or it does, but then you have to purchase that or use a MIDI controller or and it's, or, or do your open source one. Or do you yeah, <laughs> but I mean this you you just turn the power on, you know. Brink yeah. yep. and off it goes. And it's a Sony, so there's a certain amount of trust in it. Um I, I can't say anything more because I haven't played with one personally, but uh, it's quite an exciting product. If they get the price right. You know, three and a half grand, uh, I'm in. That's all I say. <laughs> all right. DJI, they've released a new Osmo, Chris. So Osmo was the gimbal on a stick that has now become very popular over the last year or so. So I recently got in a few of the original version into my office. So, of course, now they've re released a new version, which as makes the old one redundant. <laughs> um, but yeah. to be honest, I'm not that sad because if you look at what they've changed, it's really only a couple of things they've put a zoom on it, an op optical zoom. I never really found myself wanting a zoom. It's it's not the sort of camera that you're zooming in with, I found. It's it's a walk-through crowd, uh, wide-angle 
sort of camera. I, I, I never found myself going, gee, I wish I could zoom in. If I'm going to zoom in, I'm going to walk forward and then I'm get, going to get the whole gimbal effect. And that's really why I'm buying that camera to begin with. Um, I guess if you're doing a tracking shot with someone where you didn't want to get too close, that could be a consideration. So if you are tracking the bride down the aisle, maybe you don't want to be right in their face. You want to step back and zoom in. Um, but for the most part, I didn't find that to be a huge issue, but they have added that. One thing which I did find the first time I powered up the original Osmo is that it is a little noisy bugger. So they have made this a lot quieter. And in fact, they're saying it's silent, but I'm not sure about that. But anything that's better than the original is definitely an improvement because it, it was like one of the original reds. You'd hear the fan kick in and it'd go for a while and then it would go off and then it'd come on and go off. It's quite annoying. So that's definitely an improvement. They've also added a lossless digital zoom, which to me looks like a complete waste of time, Chris, because basically it's just a 4K crop in to a 1080p image. Uh, a couple of other things that I read about this, they've improved the sound on it apparently. Yep. So it went from absolutely useless to possibly usable if you absolutely had no other option. Yeah, and there's a jack in it still, um, and yep. apparently the, the fidelity of it's a lot better. I still am not convinced by that. I, I, I can't see why I'd run a cable into the front of what's meant to be a very nimble handheld thing, and then you, you're tethered. So yeah, yeah, to but, me... But, but the thing is, okay, so if you had a uh, mic on yourself and you were doing a tour or something like that, mm. let's just say you were, you were using it to to, de- to take people in journeys through places, which mm. it arguably would be good for... In selfie mode. Yep. Well, no, not for selfie, but just, just to... Let's say you were going down a factory, around a factory or something like that, or around a a, um, a tourist attraction or something, and you were recording, you know, and you were doing commentary as you went on it rather mm. than commentary afterwards. People do this kind of stuff; they do like to do it on the fly. It gives you the ability mm. to put in a little lapel mic and and you know have it all as one file by the end of it, yeah. which is better than trying to sync audio up and things like that. Yeah. I don't know. I just I think that's a nice option. At least they've they've looked at getting the sound better. Um, there was one other thing as well on it, and I can't remember what it was. Uh, uh, it wasn't battery. Um, no, there was, there was one other thing they did with it as well, which I, oh, that was it. I remember what it was. They have an option now where you can do, um, tracking shots like, uh, or like uh, time-lapse and it can actually do a panning time-lapse. Um, and so you yep. can put it on a slider or something like that as well as having so it. It's kind of like a syrup. Yeah. So it'll sit and it'll actually track around cause it has obviously, you know, the ability to do fine adjustments and movements. So you, you can do a, like a, you know, a, a sunset or something or a, you know, a nice, like, you know, shot where it sweeps across the the shot. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, We're struggling here for, for I don't know. Like, Well, I don't know. It was a feature they added. I was like, oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. That's cute. Honestly, I'm struggling to see it as a, it's a semi-professional product. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's the mid end of, of low end, high end. <laughs> low end, high end. Of, yeah. All right. Now, speaking of high end, let's go to the next story, Chris. And this is one from Canon. Now, this is a two- part story. It's Canon releasing the C700 and also the XC15. So to begin with the C700, this is definitely out of our league, I think, Chris. This is something at the high end of high end digital media production. Canon has these really good bodies, which are weird in terms of their ergonomics, but great in terms of their picture. They've got the C100, they've got the C300, and they also had the C500. Now, the C100 and the C300 are the popular ones, and these are uh, Super 35mm 
um, sort of cameras that produce very nice images with Canon EF glass. They have good inputs for audio. They have the buttons that you want, but they're not particularly cheap, but they are very good cameras and, and widely respected. This is another beast altogether. This is jumping up to compete with some of the products from Panasonic on the high end, the Vericams, and even Arri in terms of the Amiras. So this is a high-end body. Uh, it is $28,000 US with no lens, memory, or accessories. Mm. So look, this is not in our in our ballpark, Chris, but my God, it's sexy and I want one. Yeah, it looks like a pretty amazing camera. Um, and it's, uh, I'm sure it's resolve on its image is super smooth, super clean. It'll just mm. have that edge on it that is, you know, every frame is something that you could, you know, print out, mm. um, if you've got a good DOP operating it, of course. But it's, uh, the fact that it is primarily, um, EF glass. Yeah. Well, no, this is PL. Is it? Oh, yeah. it is PL. It's yeah. PL. Right. So yep. that's, yeah, yeah you're stepping up again with your lenses. So look, again, this is not something we're going to be using, but I find the most fascinating thing about this potentially is how Canon intends to p- compete with the big boys in terms of Arri. Stepping down quite a few rungs, we've got the XC15. Now, there was the XC10, which was kind of like an SLR with a built-in lens. In some respects, it was similar in terms of form factor to the RX10 from Sony. It got widely panned. Um, it did have its its niche users, but it didn't get received by the market all that well. Part of the problem was the lens was pretty slow. It was a 2.8 to 5.6 lens, and it's still the same case here with the X15 update, but they have changed a couple of things to, to improve on the recipe. The, the first thing is it's got CFast, which I'm not convinced is a great feature. It is definitely a better standard. Um, it's basically a CF card form factor, but with no pins to break off, but they're still bloody expensive. So you've got that and you've got SD. The, the 4K uh, of the camera will go to the CFast card, and then the SD side of things is for photos and 1080p, which is interesting. You, you, um, can, you can record to SD card 4K, You could, fine. but then, Chris, you wouldn't have the privilege of departing with hundreds of your dollars oh. for a single CFast oh, card. I don't understand this um, camera. You've got one, one interesting thing, and something that does actually make sense if you're using this as a B or C camera, is it has a bunch of built-in looks to match other Canon professional equipment. So if you are using a C100 or a C300, you can try and mimic the same sort of look, which does make a bit of sense. Um, it adds XLR via M, what is it, the MA400 mic adapter, which, which does come the, in the box. sits on the hot shoe, though, which it isn't does. the strongest thing on planet no. Earth. So if you accidentally um, knock it, it'll probably snap off. This is something that comes over from the C300. Um, this The XC10 didn't have this, which was one of its downfalls, not having XLR inputs. So it's good to see they're added, even though it's a bit of an add-on hack. Um, but for the price, Chris, I'd stick with your uh, RX10, I think, from Sony. Which is half the price. Um, yep, and a better lens. And Well, yeah. yeah uh, I don't know. I struck, Look, I'm sure it gives a nice... It Look, it matches the cameras. As you mm. say, if you want to be your C camera to shove in front of someone to run around with who's not as experienced to match with your other cameras. It does have, rel- it claims, sorry, that it has relatively good steady shot on it. Um, I don't know if that's the case, um, but if it does, then that could be something that is potentially quite good. 
um, in the fact you can give someone who's not as experienced that camera to sort of run around with and get some B shots. So especially if you're doing reality TV show or something like that, where you've got your primaries and you just need some secondary backup cameras floating around, it could be good for that. And it does have things like user option buttons down the side and it has... Um, yeah, I don't know. Ergonomically, it's it's obviously not quite the right. It, it's very much a, a small version of an SLR. It's very clutch. It's almost yeah. just like a lens with a bit of a box on the back of it. Um, it's small, it's portable, and I'm sure it gives a clean picture, but um, the lens really sort of lets it down a little bit. Its sensor isn't big enough for f2.8. Yeah, yeah. All right, Chris, there's one more story I want to chat to you about, and I think this is more than just a, a product announcement. Um, it, it's a whole... Um uh, workflow and industry-based thing, and that is the the whole concept of taking a, a service, whether it be photography, videography, or anything, in this case it's photography, and trying to get the costs down in order to drive up volume for clients. So uh, there's a company called Snapper, and they're very hip and cool because they're spelt it S-N-A-P-R. Double P. Double P. Sorry, I snap misread that. Snap PR. P- p- uh. It's Snap then PR. Um, look, know. this is a company that, if you if you look at this from a certain perspective, their desires are good, and that is they want to bring pro photographers to people at an affordable price. Now, the way they're doing this is basically by paying pro photographers next to nothing. Uh, and this, when I first saw this company, I got a bit riled up, Chris, so I just wanted to chat to you about it a little bit. Before we do that, let's go through what this, this company or this service is offering. Let, let's firstly just <clears> point <throat> out that it's snapper.co, not even .com. Com. They couldn't, Sorry, af- couldn't afford I, the I just com. had to verify this. <laughs> and want to pay for the M. <laughs> uh, look, this is a, a service that allows people to easily and cheaply book a photographer. So the packages, I think, are probably the best tell of, of this company. $59 for 30 minutes, and for that, that photographer comes to you um, and they do some image enhancement to the photos and they deliver you five photos. So that might not sound like a lot, but hey, if you just want a family portrait, you know, five photos is probably all you need. And for $59, you could do it every six months. Now, if you want to step up in terms of your, your spend, you can go to $209 and that gives you a three-hour shoot and 20 images that are processed. And then you can step up to the, the big package uh, for $449, and that gives you a full day shoot, seven hours, uh, 30 images included, uh, and that's their top of the line. So firstly, uh, their ads, since I've visited their website, their ads now show up in my Facebook feed, and the first few comments are things like, this is not sustainable, and no pro photographer would work for this rate, and I tend to agree. But at the same time, I am mindful of the realities and I know people want the best they can have for not much money. But this is this is pushing it too far for, for my mind. You could set up a service like this and there are services I've seen around for videographers that are kind of similar, but their prices are more like $2,000 for a day, which, okay, it's pushing it, but maybe it's sustainable if you're working most days of the week. Whereas $59 to travel out to a location, take some photos, process them, deliver them, and deal with all the other crap that would go on and the fact that you're not actually getting $59 out of this because it's going through Snapper and they're taking a bit off the top. Like, seriously, how can anyone work for that? If you're working every day, you'd have to be booking 10 jobs a day, which there's not enough hours in the day to do that. 
Yeah, and getting from A to B. Um, look, honestly, I mean, they actually have a, a one-hour shoot for ninety dollars, or nearest down at a hundred dollars as well. Mm. Um, which uh, even then, I mean, it's it's just you got to get to the location, get through the front door, say yep. hello, yep. settle down, set up, open your case, get your camera out, decide what lens you're going to put up, frame up, take a shot. Look, you could probably do that within forty-five minutes or forty minutes, but then. You know, but you're being paid, Chris, to be you, there for an hour. But then you've got to put all your stuff back in your bag, put the SD card in your laptop, bring it up. You go know, through, make your slit selects, yeah. process those, get them out. And I think this actually has to go through Snapper's interface. So you have to upload it to Snapper. On your mobile phone or well, something. Well, no, you have to go to, home, oh, I, I think, know. and do oh. it. So It's just not sustainable, really. It's I mean, really not. And I, yeah, yeah, it makes my skin crawl a bit because I... Th- what this does is, yes, this is going to, to crash and burn. I'm convinced of that. No no pro is working for this. Maybe it's going to be great for student budding photographers who want some, some work and get up their portfolio. But, but even as soon then, as then yeah. as soon as they can get out of this space, they will. But what's going to happen in the meantime, everyone's going to sort of see this and go, oh, photography is cheap now. And then uh, when it comes back and you're trying to charge a sustainable amount, $1,500 maybe or, or more for a day's shoot, they're going to be going, well, why is it so expensive now? It used to only be $500. Yeah, look, it's not sustainable. I don't, I, I can see what they're getting at, but um, you can't just send, and I think their logic is they'll, they'll find people who work for minimum wage, they'll run them through a camera course, they'll mm. shove, They'll pay them a, a wage. Oh, no, Chris, these are all pros. I'm making yeah, air quotes. But, you know, I, yeah. it's as you say, even a student isn't going to spend, you know, for the sake of just giving, being given $30, isn't going to go out and... and yeah, it's not, it's not enough to, to do it Doesn't if you were given the camera, let alone if you're working with your own gear, which you are. Mm. So, yeah, look, it's um, it's a bit of a broken model. I think if they doubled their prices, it might be in the ballpark as a, of an entry-level service. Yeah, even then, though, Chris, <laughs> would you, would you for $110, would you go out to location, do no, a shoot? No, I don't and do less than half a day. <laughs> yeah. Most professionals work on half day or full day rates. Because by the time you get there and you, you prep your kit and you get yep. all your things ready to go and then you do your communication and you even yep. if it's only two hours out there and filming and, and working and whatever and then coming back you still it's yep. it's four hours worth of time easy. Yep. And you could argue that um well you don't need if to pay more. for advertising and stuff if you're doing this because you're given the work. Well yeah, but you still have to pay for your equipment, you're still paying for insurance, you're still paying for your fuel, you're still paying for all you know, your bandwidth, your laptop, your software, your all the rest of it. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting. I, I don't know if these these people actually have a photography background or much idea. I think they just. They, I think they actually hate photographers, Chris. I think yeah. a photographer <laughs> wronged them in their childhood, and now they're out to seek revenge. Yeah, well, look, it, it's it does sort of reek of a, a startup has no real understanding of what it takes um, to take photos, and also like you know the fact that you don't work. Flat out, you know, back to back, you can't because the energy and and just the the having to set up and get from A to B is just not possible. So some rough maths in my head. Let's say out of the fifty nine dollars, let's say we're being very very generous, and say you get fifty dollars. Now to get from point A to point B, it's probably going to take you an hour. Let's say again, being very generous. So you're getting paid at the very best if you're working eight hours a day, fifty dollars an hour. Now, I can go and be a manager at McDonald's and get paid nearly that. So it's just an absolute joke. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the other cost is fuel costs of getting around in your yeah. car and the cost of expense of having a vehicle yeah. and 
your equipment and everything else. It's it's everything that you have to own and yep. effectively lease and charge batteries when you get home and look after everything outside of that. It's so it's, you're getting it's a bit different fifty dollars an hour because it's that and yeah. higher and you're well, getting paid. I mean. So let's just arguably say your kit was worth a hundred dollars a day. So then you're getting like you know. 24 or maybe 30 bucks an hour with fuel and everything taken off hmm. which okay it's 30 bucks an hour it's sort of like it's about you're not guaranteed wage. to work all day every day no exactly and so you might only have a job here and there yeah and <laughs> this is a, it's a joke yeah and i think you'd it'd be very easy to run late and yeah no yeah i mean i think that the logic is that they would assume that everybody would do a three-hour shoot like that's the one that highlights automatically is the recommended but even one. that's two, $200. Like, that's below your standard rate before you even bring any equipment into it. Like, it's just... Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, if you've really got a proper gear, I mean, you've got a minimum of maybe, you know, two two or three primes and a zoom. Um, yeah. A real body, a backup body. You know. Yeah. I mean, shoot with one body. You can get away with that. And then you have something like an RX-10 as a backup in case that dies and you can still get nice shots out of it. And that's what mm. I do. And I've get a, got away with that so far. So... Mm. Um, but yeah, nah, it's not, it's not sustainable <laughs> no. at all. I mean, for, you double it and it would be, you could just about, you could do 400 for a half day. If you're getting enough work. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not impressed with the current business model. Maybe it will change, but that is not a sustainable model for anyone. Even if you're working in a, in a climate or a country where the cost of living isn't as great as it is within Australia, it's still pretty pretty Does, sad yeah so this is an australian thing isn't it uh is it yes it is an australian service? company so are they a worldwide reaching thing or are they uh well, i believe they are because where i originally saw the story was a, a non-australian website so yeah they're obviously making waves but i think for all the wrong reasons yeah, I don't expect to see them around in um, any year's time. Yeah. All right, Chris, uh, let's finish up this episode with uh, a love tap. <laughs> yeah, this is the beer that we've been drinking today. Yeah. Very um, you go. Yeah, look, this is the love tap double lager Moondog. Um, normally, we enjoy the beers we have on this show, Chris, and, and if we don't enjoy them, we suggest that uh, they're not something we'd seek out, but we'd you know happily drink if someone handed it to us. This is the first one where I've sort of gone, no, this isn't really for me. The The first thing that hit me is a mouthful of fizz, and I thought, okay, we've just opened it. We've just walked back from the, the bottle low. Let's give it a bit of time to rest. But even at the bottom of the, the bottle, I thought, I'm still getting a mouthful of fizz. It's too it's too live. It's, it's a bit young. I don't know what it is. It's just fizzing in my mouth. It's not pleasant to drink. And you don't get a taste of the beer because you're just tasting foam the whole time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was, it was, I could just about deal with the fizz side of it. Um, but the tropical hops and a clean, crisp finish, yeah, but it's, um, I don't know, it doesn't have a lot of distinctive uh, flavor for me. That, that it, It's just a very kind of straight down the line acidic beer that's not hugely exciting. Mm. It's a 1.6, so it's got a bit of kick for this style of beer, but yeah, that's I, that's six percent alcohol, so it's alcoholic. Yeah, I just didn't enjoy it, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't know. It was um, it's almost like your average craft beer, like your average sorry homebrew kind of. Yeah, I've made beers like this when you open the top and you have to get your mouth over the, the rim pretty quickly because otherwise it's going to go all over the place. So this was not that dissimilar, which I'd expect a bit more for a beer. Yeah. Like tastes this. tastes like your average homebrew in in my opinion. It's not bad. Like it's I would I would drink a few of them, but it's yeah, very fizzy as you said. So yeah, yeah but mm. you know, 
that's it's another beer we can add to the notch of beers we've drunk on the purple fringe all right guys uh thank you for joining us once again um we're going to try and get these episodes out a bit more regularly in fact we'll have another one coming at you very shortly after this one so stay tuned for that thank you chris we'll see you next time on the purple fringe thank you john